Hey, welcome to Plant Yourself. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Two quick announcements before we get to today's show. If you're interested in becoming a health coach, I'm offering another run due to popular demand for people who can't make 8 p.m. on Wednesday nights, Eastern Time. So we're doing another run of the program, which will meet the practicums will meet at 10 a.m. on Wednesdays, Eastern Time U.S., which means if you're in Europe or Africa, uh, that might be good for you. Also, if you're in the US and evenings aren't good and you have free time in the mornings, either 7 a.m. Uh, Pacific time or 10 to 1130 Eastern, then you can participate. If you want to find out more about becoming a wicked effective health coach, you can go to wellstartcoach.com. Second thing is, if you're not aware of it, Josh Lajani and I have a book that is free on Amazon Kindle. It's called Sick to Fit. And if you just go to Amazon and search for Sick to Fit, you'll be able to download it for free and read it on any Kindle enabled device, even a phone, smartphone, tablet, computer, whatever. All right, let's get to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com and wellstarthealth.com. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live an exceptional and evidence-based life. So today's guest is a repeat it's Robin Shooter from Australia, and I wanted to have her on the podcast to talk about her recent six-part series on the ketogenic diet, a bunch of articles that she wrote for her blog that is so chock-filled with references, common sense, analysis, and I've got to admit, I'm confused about keto. I mean, there's so much buzz about it this, these days. There must be something to it, right? I mean... If it didn't work to help people lose weight and feel better, they wouldn't be doing it, right? And I admit, despite my years of research and practice, despite having co-written Whole and the Low-Carb Fraud and Proteinaholic, despite seeing the positive effects of a plant-based diet on people's health and vitality every single day, I still have this little voice in my head that's incredibly susceptible to really good marketing, and boy, does the keto paleo crowd have us beat on marketing. So when I came across this series of articles, I devoured them and I asked Robin to make a second appearance on the podcast. Robin is a recovering naturopath and she's a diplomate of the diplomate, diplomat. I don't know. She got a diploma from the International Board of Lifestyle Medicine, one of the first Australian cohorts uh, to do so. And her knowledge of health and nutrition is encyclopedic. And by that, I mean when encyclopedias used to be written by actual experts and not uh, anonymous Wikipedians. So anyway, I hope you enjoy her deconstruction of the ketogenic mythology as much as I did. And we also covered an area of Robin's recent research, which is about how Facebook groups can help people become healthier or not. And we talked about the best and worst practices in setting up and running Facebook groups, support groups for people who are transitioning or trying to maintain a healthy plant-based diet. So if you're involved in online health promotion, this will be extremely valuable stuff for you as well. All right. Um, before we get to the interview, just a couple of quick things. Um, it's October coming up and October means two things. It means a new cohort of Wellstart Health. If you're interested in that, just go to wellstarthealth.com slash program. You can read all about it and then apply. 12 weeks, a virtual health retreat with me and Josh Lajani and Kevin Davis and guest stars. 
uh, getting you into a community and creating and reinforcing really powerful, healthy habits. Second thing is, if you are thinking of becoming a health coach or you are a health coach and you wish you could get better results or more reliable, more consistent results or more long-lasting results, or you just feel like, you know, maybe you're a health coach and you've graduated from a program and you know how to market and you know how to ask all the right questions and you're still not getting traction with your clients, um, we have a program. That And I'll start sharing the testimonials that I've gotten from this first cohort, which have been truly remarkable and heartwarming. Check us out. Um, and the way you do it right now is send me an email at hj at plantyourself.com. We will soon have a website up. But in the meantime, if you're interested in finding out and being put on that notification list, just hit me up, hj at plantyourself.com. Com. All right, so let's get to the ketogenic diet and all those smoke and mirrors. So without further ado, Robin Shooter, welcome back to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thanks for having me back again. Yeah, so we, we, um, we were going to talk about uh, ketogenic diets, and you, you wrote what amounts to a book in... <laughs> I think I might end up getting it published. There's a lot of work that went into that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's on your website, uh, which tell us what it is so people can go pause and listen and, and go read it for themselves and then come back and listen sure. to us. It, it's, um, it's now a six-part series. <laughs> it started out a, a three-part series and then and it just kind of like Topsy, it just grew. And uh, it's now a six-part series on the ketogenic diet. So each part kind of focuses on, on one element of the ketogenic diet, all the claims made for it. For yeah. example, does the ketogenic diet cure, cure cancer, cure diabetes? And then the last part that I wrote, which is a subject that's very near and dear to my heart, is what does the ketogenic diet do to the gut microbiome? Mm -hmm. So before, before we jump in, what's your website so people can go find it for themselves? Oh, it's Empower Total Health. Dot com dot au. I am in Australia, as in guest by the accent, so don't forget the dot au. So E-M-P-O-W-E-R, Empower, and then TotalHealth.com.au. Beautiful. So I'll include links to the uh, to all six parts um, right. in, in the show notes. Um, so before we get into it, I'm curious why the gut microbiome is near and dear to your heart. It's absolutely fascinating and I, I love to geek out on research. I'll geek out on any research. I, I geek out on behavioral research. I geek out on biological research. I just geek out on research. And the gut microbiome is just so incredible in terms of the effect that it has on our behavior, on our food preferences, on our disease risks and let's just say the impact of the ketogenic diet on the gut microbiome is not good. Obviously, there is a lot still to be discovered about the gut microbiome. We don't yet know exactly what constitutes a healthy gut microbiome, but the changes that are seen in the gut microbiota of people who, who go on carb-restricted, high-fat diets, they're really in the opposite direction to the patterns that we see as being associated with health. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's reminding me like of... Uh a friend who was a hippie in the 60s and he was he was writing about the uh, the Altamont Music Festival which happened a little bit after Woodstock this was on the west coast and you know Woodstock was of course you know 3 days of peace and music and like half a million people you know no violence Altamont there was 
like there was deaths, there was, uh, you know, violence, there was terror. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that like the main cause, according to people who were there and who were part of it, was the decision by the concert promoters to hire Hell's Angels motorcycle gang to be the security. And, <laughs> and to, wow, that's an interesting choice. And, and to pay them in beer. <laughs> and kind of that's what I'm thinking about with the microbiome that, mm. you know, so there's so many more of them than us, like in terms of the, the microbes in our bodies. Like I've heard, you know, a hundred trillion, like 10, 10 times more of them, of their cells than our cells. Um, I don't know what the percentage of DNA, you know, they, uh, there is a hundred to 150 times more microbial DNA than human DNA in the human body. That's, which is extraordinary. Yeah. All right. So it's like, you know, who do I want, um, you know, defending me? Do I want a bunch of drunken hell's angels or, or do I want like, you know, qualified security personnel? Um, you know, going, going around and, um, you know, policing my body. Yeah, that's a, that's a really striking analogy, actually. <laughs> and I even like that the fact that the Hells Angels were paid in beer, it, it, it's kind of like we pay our microbiota in leftover food. Okay, mm. so in other words, they're mostly down there in the colon living off the scraps, you might say. Anything that we don't manage to digest and absorb in the small intestine ends up in the, col in, in, in the large intestine, the colon, where the gut microbiota get to have a go at it. And so depending on what you pay them in, that, that determines who will grow. If you pay them in lots of fiber and plant polysaccharides and polyphenols from your whole food plant-based diet, then what grows is the bugs that are just metabolically, genetically adapted to living off, off those wages, if you like. And if you pay them in, in um, the amounts of fat and protein that people eat, um, particularly on, on the more, I suppose, uh, the more modern adaptations to the ketogenic diet, which is beyond what a human being could possibly absorb. So those, those leftovers end up paying types of bacteria down in the gut that, that ferment protein and also that break down bile or that just flat out eat fat. And I, I mean, I've never thought of them as hell's angels, but that's actually a really good analogy. <laughs> right. I, I just want to make sure I clear. I, I don't have anything against hell's angels. <laughs> Just you know. <laughs> Hell's Angels are lovely, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I just um I, yeah. <laughs> just didn't 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 um uh, didn't work out at Altamont in the late sixties. Um No, apparently not. <laughs> so, so um so we know that the gut microbiome changes based on what we're feeding it. And if we're doing this ketogenic diet, they're getting a very, very specific um set of uh of nutrients that, that determine their makeup. Let's, let's start from the very beginning, because one of the things I loved about your six-part series is that essentially parts one and two are the basics. So before, like, yes. I, you know, so I, you know, hang out with, I play on a, 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 an old men's sports team, so a lot of these guys are doing keto, as they say, and we can argue about it, but we, nobody knows what anyone's talking about. So let's, let's, let's go to first principles and tell us, like what 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 does ketogenic mean? What are ketone bodies? Why do we even have them in the first place? 
And, how, and, and what's, the, what's their evolutionary significance for our health? Absolutely. Well, the, the ketogenic diet was developed back in 1924. It, it goes back a long way. And uh, a doctor by the name of Russell Wilder, who was at the Mayo Clinic, uh, had come across research that fasting uh, actually put people who were epileptic out of their seizures. And this, this research on seizure disorders being essentially, you might say, cured by fasting went back as, as far as 1910. And Wilder hypothesized that um, ketone bodies that were generated during this seizure effect. So that was great, but of course, as we all know, you, you can't fast forever. Eventually, you're going to run out of, of food and you die, <laughs> or you run out of you know, bodily reserves and you die. And this applies particularly to children. And he was concerned that he was seeing epileptic children. They weren't responsive to the anesthesia medications that were available at the time. They're what, what are called um, drug-resistant uh, epilepsy um, or refractory epilepsy. And so he hypothesized that if he could put them on a diet that generated ketone bodies, that that might have the same effect on epilepsy as actually fasting. And it turned out that he was right. So he developed what, what was known as, uh, what is now known, because there are so many versions of it, as the classic ketogenic diet. And this was a diet that was 6% uh, um, protein, 4%, this is um, on basis of calories, so 6% calories from protein, 4% calories from fat, and of course the remaining 90% was carbohydrate. And there have since been several... Wait, wait a minute, night, night, I, thought, I thought it was um, almost no carbohydrates. Oh, sorry, not, yeah, 90% um, calories from fat is what I meant to say. Okay, for 4%? So yep, 90% uh -huh. fat, 6% protein, 4% carbohydrate. Gotcha. Sorry. Okay. Yep. Uh, All right. And, and it, it works fairly well. It doesn't work for every child with, with refractory epilepsy, but for those for whom it works, it works pretty well. And they would have to be on the diet for anywhere from several months to a year or so. And once they were seizure-free, then they were the carbohydrates were slowly reintroduced back into their diet. And, you know, on the whole, they remained seizure-free. And since then, a number of variants on that classic ketogenic diet have been developed for the treatment of epilepsy in, that allow a little more carbohydrate, but they still are, are extremely low carbohydrate diet. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what what's the biology of ketones and and all this? Yeah. Okay. Well, I think most people are aware that the the primary fuel of of really most cells in the human body is glucose, and this is particularly true of the brain. The brain's really very heavily dependent on a constant supply of glucose. When we eat, uh, if we eat carbohydrates, that is, our blood sugar level goes up and the, the brain's then able to, to run off the carbohydrate that's available just from the, the meal that you ate. But the liver starts uh, kind of withdrawing, you might say, withdrawing glucose from the bloodstream and storing it up 
as glycogen. So the liver stores a certain amount of glycogen, the muscles store some more. And in between meals, the muscles will happily run off their own glycogen and the liver releases glycogen into the bloodstream so that the brain and other glucose dependent tissues can, can have some of that. But our glycogen, our liver glycogen stores run out fairly quickly and the muscles are miserly. Muscles don't share their glycogen stores with anybody else. They keep it for themselves. So the once the liver sort of reaches a, a, a critical point in terms of, of its glycogen supply, it then directs a process called gluconeogenesis. So gluco, glucose, neo, new, and genesis, the creation of. So gluconeogenesis is the creation of new glucose from stuff that wasn't glucose, stuff that wasn't carbohydrate. And so we're able to turn certain amino acids from protein into glucose. They're called um, glucogenic amino acids. And we're also able to turn glycerol, which, which is formed when we break down triglycerides from fat, that can be turned into glucose as well. So gluconeogenesis hums along for the next several hours, um, up to a day or so, um, after we stop taking any kind of carbohydrate or have very low carbohydrate intake. And gluconeogenesis will keep the brain going for a while. But because gluconeogenesis is heavily dependent on protein as the sort of as what we call a substrate, like the basis for making that glucose. The 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 liver kind of goes, well, this is this is bad. We don't want to break down too much protein. Protein's very precious. So the whole the, the, the body then switches over to ketone production. So the, again, this is coordinated by the liver. By this stage, the fat reserves, the fat depots in the body are releasing large amounts of fat into the bloodstream to use as a fuel. The brain cannot just use fatty acids as a fuel. Muscles can. Muscles are very adaptable. Um, so is the heart. So there are some tissues that will switch over to burning just fat, just um, triglycerides, but the brain can't. So now the liver is going to, to turn some of those triglycerides into ketone bodies, put those into the bloodstream, the brain takes them up, and now the brain switches over to burning mostly ketone bodies. The brain still requires a small amount of glucose. There's an obligatory usage of glucose because uh, the brain can't run entirely on ketone bodies. It needs some glucose for efficiency. And so there's a little bit of, of protein breakdown um, that, that remains. And, and, and this, by the way, what I'm describing here is a total fast, right? So if someone takes in no, no calories at all, this is what will happen. And by the way, that's why we even have ketosis. That's why we make ketone bodies. This is an adaptation to food shortage or a total absence of food, which humans are able to make you know, early in our evolutionary period. So um, muscles running primarily off triglyceride, brain now running off ketone bodies, and the organism can kind of keep going like that until such time as the fat reserves entirely run out, and then you're going to start to death. Okay, gotcha. That was, that was really, really clear. So, um, so let me ask my, my stupid questions. So it sounds, it sounds like that... The ketogenesis, uh, the creation of ketone bodies, isn't something that happens on a gradient. That like, okay, I don't eat for an hour, so I'm going to make a little bit. I don't eat for four hours, I'm going to make a little bit more. It's like there's an on-off switch, right? It's kind of binary. No, you get 
There is a gradient effect. So there's a small amount of ketone bodies that, that are formed just in the course of everyday living if there are if there are fairly large gaps in between meals. So so say if you have a fairly long overnight fast, 12, 13, 14 hours without food overnight, um, that's not as long as many people are doing now with, with the popularity of various forms of intermittent fasting. But you'll get a small amount of, of, of ketone formation, but the state of ketosis really describes where the brain is running off ketone bodies as its primary fuel source. So that will not happen until such time as, as glucose stores and glycogen stores are really depleted. Mm -hmm. So there is a gradient effect, but we reach maximum ketone body production at around about... Um, I think it's about eight to ten days into a total fast is when um, ketone production reaches its max, and then it just plateaus at that point. Gotcha. Um, so, do you have a sense of like what's what's the purpose of ketones at twelve or thirteen hours of a fast? Is it sort of just to to prime the body in case this is the start of a a really bad week, or does it does it do ketones have a function in in our sort of you know everyday healthy uh, metabolism. Think of keeping a backup generator. You know, a hospital has to have a reliable electricity supply, and if say there's a there's a, a, a storm and the electricity supply is cut off. We've got all these people who are on ventilators and, and machines that are keeping them alive and there are surgeons who might be doing an operation in the middle of, 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 this, of this electrical storm. And so they have to have, um, they have, to have a backup uh, power source. They have, a, say, a diesel generator. So it's not as efficient and they, they can use it just to keep everybody alive. But as soon as possible, they want to get back on the grid. That's how ketone bodies function for us. It's essentially that, it's that backup power supply. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're certainly utilizable by various tissues, but they're not the preferred tissue. They're not, they're, they're not the preferred fuel source, even for the tissues that use them. Um, I think a very interesting example of this is that young babies do use ketone bodies to fuel their brain. Um, this, this is when they're newborn to around six months. As the human brain grows and becomes more complex and we're using it for a lot more tasks than just, you know, eating and pooping and crying, <laughs> um, then the, the relative amount, relative proportion of glucose that the brain uses rises dramatically. So in other words, complex activities of the brain are very dependent on glucose. Rather than rather than ketone bodies, so you might say the high functions of the brain are what are lost or compromised when a person is in ketosis. And, and again, looking at the evolutionary background to this, that makes sense. If early humans were in ketosis when they were essentially starving, they weren't. Got, this wasn't going to be a time when they were, you know, making up poems and stories <laughs> or you know, um, carrying out rituals to, to sort of bond their tribe. They were hungry and they were looking for food. So it's, it's kind of like that, that reptilian brain. Mm. <laughs> it, it function entirely well on ketone bodies. Look for food, look for food. What can we do to survive? But anything that, that's, that you might say is higher function is pretty compromised when the brain doesn't have enough glucose. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Um, so when I think about like intermittent fasting, 
Um, and I, you know, I came off a seven-day water fast uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, that's when I, re I released a, a pretty raw podcast episode um, that you might you might say was based on, uh, you know, it, it was it was maybe less reflective and, and more raw than usual. So maybe that was my my version of uh, of uh, look for food, look for food. Um, <laughs> it's actually it's actually one of my favorite episodes so far. Mm -hmm. Just saying. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Um, yeah, they may, uh, may, some of our filters maybe aren't so useful all the time. So when I, when I think about uh, intermittent fasting, I think about something that is a stressor that we don't want to do all the time, but we also want to do it sometimes. Like, you know, just like working our muscles to failure is a stressor, we w but we, we don't want to become fragile, right? We, so we want yeah. to... We want to stress ourselves strategically and intermittently and maybe so that so that, um, you know, like that's they're saying, like, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. How, however, so, so there's actually a term for that in biology. It's called hormesis or a hormetic stress. Uh -huh. And uh, which is pretty much defined as whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So definitely exercise is a hormetic stress and and yeah i would agree fasting is a hormetic stress as well the fact is we are adapted to do it and our modern environment doesn't provide us with the you might say natural opportunities to practice it so now we have to voluntarily do it <laughs> uh -huh. okay that was my question whether ketosis okay occasionally was more like exercise or more like cutting ourselves with a rusty blade which is <laughs> It's interesting that many of the benefits that we see with, with fasting, with water-only fasting, are extraordinarily similar to the benefits documented with exercise. You know, for instance, um, enhanced glucose tolerance and kind of like a recalibration of the, of the autonomic nervous system. So it, in, in that sense, I think we, we, we can certainly say that the state of fasting, which involves more than ketosis, by the way, although water-only fasting is definitely dependent on the capacity to go into ketosis. But th So there's more to fasting than just ketosis, but it, it is probable that, that running on ketosis for limited periods of time may be uh, part of the part of that hormetic stress situation. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So so there was this diet that way back in the twenties that was ninety percent fat, six percent protein, four percent carbohydrates, which to me sounds like not much fun. And no. and even even when I was eating at my worst. Like that doesn't like that doesn't sound like fun for anybody. One of the there are two major problems with with the ketogenic diet um, applied to to epilepsy. One is that one is just what they call a lack of dietary tolerance. Kids can't stand it. It's disgusting. It it, it tastes awful. They they really you know they really jones for for, for carbs. And um, the other the other thing is that there are some massive uh, gastroenterological side effects. So nausea, for instance, they get diarrhea. Uh, they become more prone to, to gallstones. And there are some fairly nasty cardiovascular side effects as well. So cardiomyopathy, where the muscles of the, of the heart weaken, has been um, a, a cause for quite a number of, of, of people, of epileptics who are being treated with this diet, to have to drop out of treatment. Hmm. 
Okay. And also cardiac arrhythmias, I should say, as well. And mm-hmm. people do die doing this ketogenic diet. I remember reading um, case reports of, of lipoid pneumonia where where uh, people actually aspirate fat into the lungs and, and then develop pneumonia and die. So, you know, it, it, it's not without its problems. Mm-hmm. And as I say, like as soon as, as soon as people are seizure-free for, you know, the requisite period of time, they can't wait to get back on carbohydrates. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So so given that this was a disgusting, harmful diet that only was used for people for whom the potential benefits outweighed all the side effects and risks, how the hell did this get so popular? And and, and, and <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good question. Now I can answer that in several ways. Um, the the first way is that that was the classic ketogenic diet, and since then multiple variants of it have been um, developed, and they involve more protein, slightly less fat, you know, a, a higher carbohydrate content, and so they're they're somewhat more palatable. And then the other thing is, the the other explanation is that sometimes humans just do really deeply weird stuff. (laughs) I was listening to an interview with David Goldman the other day, and he was talking about, uh, he's an exercise physiologist for those who don't know, he was formerly at True North Health Centre, and he was talking about a study that he'd read where People who were put on a ketogenic diet, their their exercise performance was was tested. And those who actually had the worst exercise performance rated themselves as feeling the best and having the fastest recovery. And his theory for this is that, um, and, and, and I thought it was pretty interesting, was that if there's this adaptation that... Uh, kicks in when you're when you're starving and and if it keeps going you're going to die if there's kind of a kindness built into the system that at least you might die happy in other words you know you might kind of feel deluded enough that actually everything's going pretty well while you're dying that that has not been tested out to the best of my knowledge, but it's an interesting <laughs> hypothesis. So uh-huh. in other words, you might be in a delusional state <laughs> while in ketosis. Uh-huh. Well, if you, if you say it affects, you know, brain function, then, you know, like one, one, I guess, you know, one of the main qualities of being impaired is that you aren't aware that you're impaired. Yes. I think it's also interesting that, that every religious and spiritual tradition that I know of incorporates fasting practices and mostly they're not as full tilt as a as a, you know, a, a lengthy water only fast, but sometimes sometimes it is. And so when people fast for long periods of time and have what they perceive to be spiritual experiences, are they um having spiritual experiences or are they having delusions? I don't know. I mean, how do you even answer that question? It's intriguing. Right. I guess I guess it goes to whether you think our brains when they when they're working the way they're supposed to, are they apprehending reality or distorting it? Are we all in the matrix? Right. <laughs> right. Um, so, I mean, that's so, I mean, it's also really interesting because like one of the mantras that I hear from and I know you, we, you and I have talked before and you described yourself as a recovering naturopath. So, yeah. so you know that one of the favorite mantras of naturopathy is like, you know, bioindividuality and you, you know, see how this makes you feel. And like we, we can do objective measures. We can put someone in a keto diet and see that, okay, they suck at yeah. bicycling or running or the stress test. Yeah. 
And if we know this and we're still letting them get away with, oh, yeah, I think I feel I feel great. I'm, I'm euphoric yeah. now. I'm, I'm Superman. I can... let's, let's face it. Alcohol can make you feel better. Cocaine. I'm sure I, I haven't done it personally. It's very expensive. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I'm sure when people snort coke, they feel better. And when people, uh, well, at least when smokers smoke cigarettes, they definitely feel better. When people drink coffee, they feel better. But the question is, are they getting better or are they merely feeling better? And that's why we have science. That's <laughs> why we have objective tests so that we can put people on a treadmill and, and see how long it takes for them to run to exhaustion. We, we, can, we can check their, their, their max VO2 and all that sort of stuff. Um, and we could also have objective measures of how, how quickly they recover. Um, which was one of the other things that, that was noted in the study that David Goldman was talking about. And, of course, there we have, um, there we have long-term follow-up studies to, mm -hmm. to actually objectively track how people do over time with various diet and lifestyle habits. Mm -hmm. So my, my understanding, and I don't know that I have science to back this up, um, is that, and I, but I certainly, certainly anecdotally, like people that I talk to who are doing Atkins or low-carb, Almost all of them <coughs> fail and blame themselves. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, it's, it's so it, so it, it sounds like, you know, if we took these kids in the 1920s who were epileptics who were trying to get this stuff down, um, that you'd probably have the same, you know, high dropout rate of the study. Um, mm. But at least people go, mm. you know what, this is almost untenable and disgusting. But now mm. we, we have, like, what, what does... I don't even know, like, what does a ketogenic diet look like? Like, I went to a, uh, a Frisbee mm -hmm. tournament with a bunch of my buddies, several of whom are doing keto. So we went shopping. Um, you know, I got avocados and kale and sweet potatoes. They got milk and, and like, four cartons of eggs and lots of bacon. And, like, that was, yeah. their, that was their breakfast before we went and ran around for four hours. Um, so what, yeah. like, what, the, what is... The starters. For starters, most people who say that they're quote-unquote doing keto are not doing anything remotely approximating a ketogenic diet. I mean, if you're doing a ketogenic diet, as in what is described for epilepsy, you're weighing and measuring every morsel of food that you eat. You're, you're using keto sticks to actually check that you're in ketosis. In the case of, of someone with epilepsy, if they slip out of ketosis at any, at any stage during the day, it actually compromises the efficacy of the treatment. And they're likely to have seizure. So most people who say they're doing keto are, are having the, a lot more carbohydrate and, you, and usually a lot more protein. Because don't forget, protein can a certain amino acids in protein can be converted into glucose. So if most of the people who are doing um, what they think is a ketogenic diet are actually having far too much protein to be genuinely in ketosis. What so what actually does a ketogenic diet consist of? It, it's a lot of oil, a lot of just foods that are extremely high in, in, in fat and low in carbohydrate and, and, and low in protein as well. Mm. So uh, like oil, lard. Uh, yeah, I mean, milk, milk, for instance, has carbohydrate in the form of lactose. So I, I can't see how that would fit into a truly ketogenic mm. diet. Right. So I guess when people say they're doing keto, they're not talking about 
classic keto or even any, any no, of those? They're, they're not. But even the variants of, of the classic ketogenic diet that, that involve a little more protein and carbohydrate is still not what the average person who thinks they're doing keto is doing. Mm-hmm. So is this, is this just a, a, a marketing label thrown over eat lots of animal foods? In my observation of it, yes. I guess that's it. Like we're yeah, we're we're fighting it, a straw it, man here. It, it, it's like John McDougall always says: people love to hear good news about their bad habits. So if you love bacon, you're going to look for a diet that justifies your your consumption of bacon. And so Atkins is a bit old hat now. No one really talks about doing Atkins anymore. And some versions of well, I mean, bacon definitely does not fit into a Paleolithic diet because newsflash: humans were not curing, <laughs> you know, pig meat. <laughs> And, and consuming that. Um, so, what what is the only diet that that is sort of currently doing the rounds that really justifies your consumption of, of, of bacon? Well, it's keto. So, if you love bacon, looks like keto is the diet for you. I'm being mm. a little flippant, but but I mean, like I said, people who claim to be doing keto aren't. So, what are they doing? They're, they're just making they're, they're they're applying a label to their preferred pattern of food consumption. Mm-hmm. And so, so it's based on sort of fear, carbophobia, right? Like carbophobia, exactly. Right. So if I can't, you know, potatoes, corn, rice, uh, beans because of the lectins. So that's all off. I don't want to do the the clearly junky foods, like yes. right. So I'm not going to do donuts and cookies, or at least not when anyone's looking. So okay. so that leaves my steaks, my hot dogs, my hamburgers without the bun, my bacon. And my cheese. Lettuce burgers. Mm. Right. My cheese my cheese omelets. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So why why aren't and, these and people dropping dead in front of me? Like like they're you know it's okay, so they're they're if they would did a, a stress test or performance test, it would impair. But like these guys are in pretty good shape, the people I know who are right. doing it. It's it's a testimony to the extraordinary resilience of the human body. It really is. Now, what's happening, of course, is really within days of adopting a ketogenic diet, you're going to see impairments to endothelial function. This has been documented, by the way. So endothelial function is impaired, which the endothelium is, is the inner lining of the arteries. I know you know this, but for the, for the listener, right. <laughs> the endothelium is the inner lining of, of, of our arteries, and it's responsible for maintaining the health of the arteries, dilating the arteries when required to, to facilitate blood, extra blood flow, safer exercise. The endothelium is also, um, the endothelium has to be in good shape to prevent atherosclerosis or the buildup of, of, a, of, a, of a cholesterol-laden, fatty, calcified plaque on the inner lining of the arteries. And we, we know from the studies that have been done that, that a ketogenic diet impairs endothelial function and it dramatically impairs cardiac blood flow as well. But if you're young, and in pretty good shape, then it's going to, to take many years for the results of, of the ketogenic diet on your cardiovascular system to show up as a heart attack or even erectile dysfunction, although that, that will be the first thing that shows up mm-hmm. just because of the relative mm-hmm. narrowness of the penile artery compared to the coronary arteries. Uh-huh. Gotcha. So maybe they're so good at Frisbee because they're not having, they don't have time for, they don't have sex anymore. They're, just more, more focused. I don't know. You'd have to ask them about that. Would you get an honest answer? I don't know. Yeah. 
so, I haven't been privy to those kinds of discussions among men. <laughs> right, right. I'll I'll, uh, I'll go undercover and get back to you. Uh, so, the, but the other thing that really flummoxes me is like people, like scientists, people who have you know good brains and and I'm sure are not trying to sell anything. They're trying to tell the truth. There's like I'm reading a lot of books where people are kind of in adjacent fields to nutrition and they're really smart about their fields and they're, 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 they're trumpeting the, the benefits of the ketogenic diet. So one, uh, one example I'll name, I'd love to get him on the podcast. He hasn't responded so far is uh, Sachin Panda, who's a doctor out of California who does amazing work about the circadian rhythms, the, bio, the yeah. circadian biology. And I'm telling people to read his book because it's phenomenal and I'm also telling them, please ignore everything he says about food. Yes, yes. So do you remember that book you wrote with T. Colin Campbell, Whole? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite books of all time. Uh. <laughs> um, it's reductionism. This is, this is reductionism in full flight. So in other words... Reductionism, again, as you know, this is the benefit of the listener, is, is this um, narrowing down the, down the focus, like narrowing the aperture so that we look at, at, at just a small fragment of the overall picture. And so, I mean, the reality is if you put people on a ketogenic diet, there are certain biomarkers which are going to improve. Their blood glucose level will drop. I mean, if you're a diabetic and your blood glucose level is, is off the charts and you go on a ketogenic diet, there's no doubt about it. Your blood glucose level is going to drop because um, you're not having carbohydrates. So, duh, of course your blood sugar level is going to drop. Do you say duh in America or is that uniquely Australian? Uh, yeah, is it the same as duh? <laughs> kind of. I, I guess yeah. we have... We, that, that's our hangover from the British influence. We say a duh. So, yeah, duh. I'll say a duh. Oh, no, no. <laughs> stay with duh. <laughs> yeah, you, you do see improvements in, in, in um, uh, blood glucose level. There are uh, some other, uh, some, what look like improvements in glucose metabolism, such as what's called insulin area under the curve. Uh, there's obviously a drop in fasting insulin production as well, because without carbohydrate, the requirement to secrete insulin is much lower. And if people lose weight on a ketogenic diet, which they commonly do, and not, not, by the way, because there's some magic metabolic advantage to ketogenic diets. That's really been comprehensively disproven by, by Kevin Hall with his truly marvelous, magical, you know, beautiful, elegant um, metabolic ward studies. He's shown that there is no metabolic advantage to, to, to the ketogenic diet. In other words, mm -hmm. it's a weight loss diet that works because people eat less calories. Mm -hmm. That's there's no magic to it, okay? Um, but if people lose weight, you, you, uh, in most cases, you're going to see a drop in cholesterol. And so we do see that with ketogenic diets. It's not as impressive as you'd see if a person lost weight on a whole food plant-based diet, but just losing weight will drop down your cholesterol level. So there are improvements in biomarkers, no doubt about it. And, of course, Sachin Panda, his research is done on mice and rats. 
Um, and, and rodents are not humans. So when we, when we try to extrapolate out results that, that, that we gain on rodents to humans, there's, there's usually a very large shortfall. Rodent models provide pretty interesting starting points, but then you've got to take it to the humans, which is what Kevin Hall does so fabulously well. Uh-huh. Gotcha. Um, so, so, so we have these, so, um, blood glucose will drop insulin area under the curve. Can you explain that one? Mm. It's really just the amount of insulin that needs to be secreted over time to return the blood glucose level to normal. Mm -hmm. So if a person is very insulin resistant, and that's the hallmark of type 2 diabetes, but by the way, it does also develop over time with most type 1s, uh, then if a person is insulin resistant, they'll have to, their pancreas will have to secrete a lot more insulin to try to get that blood glucose level back down to normal again. Okay. So my, my understanding of certainly you know, insulin resistant diabetes is that it's a disease of too much fat in the muscles. It starts off with, with too much fat in the muscles and, and fat then accumulates in the liver as well and eventually fat accumulates in the pancreas itself and uh, those little pockets of fat that are invading the muscle tissue, the liver tissue and the pancreatic tissue are highly inflammatory and so this accumulation of fat within the pancreas actually, secre actually produces inflammatory chemicals that kill beta cells, the insulin secreting cells. Uh -huh. So okay, so over time that becomes what type one and a half, where where the, the well yeah event so so what happens with type twos is is um, initially they're secreting enormous amounts of insulin, you know two five even ten times as much insulin as as, as a non diabetic person, and provided their pancreas can keep up with that, then they will maintain a relatively normal glucose level. They're, they're still diabetic, but they're they're coping. Eventually, their pancreas will just poop out. It, it, it simply so if you kill off enough beta cells, you just can't produce that amount of insulin, and so at that point they're likely to become insulin dependent. They'll actually have to start injecting insulin, even though they're type twos. Okay, so I mean, the, where I'm going with this is you just listed a whole bunch of biomarkers related to diabetes that improve on a ketogenic diet, and yet pretty much every ketogenic diet will contribute to what I understand to be the, uh, the galloping underlying cause of the disease. So I'm, I'm, having, I'm having a little like my brain is smoking, like it, it, helps, yeah, it helps with biomarkers, absolutely. but it makes the disease worse. Yes, again, and th this is the perils of reductionism. So in, in the short term, and remember these studies on diabetes, we don't have anything that, that, that goes past, I believe, I have to check the, the studies, but I don't think we have anything that goes past two years. And most of them are six months or, or less. Mm. So what you see is this short-term improvement in biomarkers. But look, nobody dies of, of, of diabetes. People die of diabetic complications. There are macrovascular complications, which are things like heart attacks, and strokes and then there are microvascular complications which is mostly uh, retinopathy eye disease uh, kidney disease and nerve disease so the kidney disease can kill you the eye disease makes you blind which is awful and the, the neuropathy is is highly unpleasant uh, but again probably won't kill you so what what we actually need is is to to figure out well, what 
What is the best way for diabetics to eat that will save them from diabetic complications, especially atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease? Because that's the major cause of death in diabetics. They have about four times the risk of heart attack as a non-diabetic. Mm. And heart attacks are already the leading cause of death in, in westernized countries. Okay, so, so, so the biomarker studies say that most are about six months. Um, mm. So do we have study? I mean, it, it feels like, like, like keto has taken such hold. And, bec- and I, think, I think it's because it's, it sounds more impressive, right? Yeah. So what, I, I, I'm going to loop back to something you said before, which is that people that you know who've tried this eventually fail. Um, fail meaning they eat carbohydrates again, which, by the way, is not surprising because carbohydrates are the preferred food source of the human being. They're the, they're the foods, they're the primary macronutrient that made up the bulk of our diet throughout our evolutionary history. So, in other words, it, we're unlikely to get long-term studies where people are fully compliant with a ketogenic diet so that we can um, find out exactly what I just said, like you know, how do people do, uh, if they stick consistently to a ketogenic diet and they say diabetic. What we do know from epidemiological studies is that people who eat a low-carbohydrate diet have a higher mortality rate. They are more likely to die. So that doesn't bode well if you already have a chronic degenerative disease like type 2 diabetes, which is going to shorten your life expectancy anyway. Mm. So we have kind of like a proxy measure for what happens when people do a long-term carbohydrate-restricted diet. Now, I'm not saying that we have studies of a long-term ketogenic diet, because we don't, because people can't stick to it. They do it for a couple of months at a stretch, and then they just can't stand it anymore. So this is like someone saying that holding your breath for two years has never killed anyone. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> wow, that's insane. Uh, it kind of is. Like I said, humans do crazy stuff. Um, the the remarkable range of human um, craziness never ceases to to amuse me, entertain me, and, and flabbergast me. <laughs> oh, awesome. Well, I, I I feel like we've uh, anyone who's listening to this who is convincible has been convinced to, uh, to not do this keto madness. If, could, we, could we switch, um, switch gears for the last little bit? I'd love to find out what you discovered in your, your research on moderated Facebook groups. And, specific, yeah. and tell, like, tell us what the question is and, and what you found. Yeah, so last time we spoke, I was I was in the midst of my, my honours research project, um, my, my prep for starting my PhD, and I decided to do my, my honours project on this particular Facebook group called Whole Food Plant-Based Aussies. Um, if you're in Australia or New Zealand, we do accept Kiwis as honorary Aussies for these purposes. <laughs> you're very welcome to join this group. We have a few non-Australians, but mostly we accept Aussies. So if you're on a whole food plant-based diet and you want some support, join this group. Okay, so my research question was basically does membership of of a a Facebook group such as this with a really dedicated purpose, does it facilitate people in adopting and particularly maintaining a whole food plant-based diet? And the short answer is yes. The the longer answer is a lot more interesting just in terms of of exactly what it is that people get out of, of group membership. And it's everything from just information sharing on the most, um, I suppose, simple of levels. For example, what do you eat? 
on a whole food plant-based diet because you know people can read the China study they can read whole they they can read any number of great books on a whole food plant-based diet and then they close the book and they say well that's great I'm sold I'll start tomorrow what the heck do I eat Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so um, people often post photos of their meals in, in Facebook groups, and this one's no exception. But the great thing about this group is that the meals aren't all prettied up. They're not like Instagram photos. They're just like someone whacked the food on a plate and it was beans and rice and a bit of kale or a baked potato with you know some random veggies, and they snap a pic of it, and there's no, there's no floral arrangements and there's no <laughs> lighting or whatever. It's just like, hey, this is what I had for dinner. It might look much, but it was good. Yeah. And people look at that and go, oh, so that's what you eat on a whole food plant-based diet. So for newbies, it's really good to see that not everyone is cooking up a gourmet storm every night of the week. It, it's If you like doing that sort of stuff and you find it fun, then knock yourself out. But most of us are just kind of whacking stuff on a plate, and it's fine. Um the the other sort of major benefit that people get out of this group is is just that that kind of like that moral support, particularly if you're the only one in your family or in your workplace who who's doing this. It's lonely, and the the, the social pressure, the pressure to conform, the the concern about how am I going to handle that that um, you know the big family get together. You know what do I do when my mother-in-law makes this criticism about my diet? all that sort of stuff uh, people actually get enormous amounts of support through through this Facebook group the well moderated part is really important because people can behave incredibly badly in in, in, in online you know yeah. in, in anonymity of social media and so this this group that the admins run a very tight ship and anyone mm. who's nasty just gets booted out right well I was, I was- I was going to ask about that because, you know, I'm, uh, I'm involved in training coaches. So I've become very sensitive to like things that work and things that don't work. And like, no, nobody, like a lot of people would never be nasty and they want to be helpful. And yet they can be extremely unhelpful. Like, you know, sort of lay people. If someone says, Oh, I had a, you know, I did a bad meal and they'll either, you know, they'll say, oh, just shake it off and move, like something like meant to make them feel well, but but ultimately unhelpful. I'm, I'm curious, like what are the qualities and the behaviors of moderators that you see yeah. as being particularly effective? Yeah. OK, that, that's a really interesting question because I, I interviewed one of the moderators as, as part of my research um, um, project. And the quality of a moderator is. Look, it's a couple of things. Number one, they really keep the purpose of the group in mind. And so sometimes threads will get started where people are discussing things that are really kind of outside the scope of the group's purpose. And it may not be a nasty conversation, but it's really just unhelpful. Like, in other words, if you're posting pictures of a Beyond Burger um, product, and and sort of ooing and ahhing over it. Okay, look, people might like that, but it doesn't really fit into a whole food plant-based diet. Mm-hmm. And so posts like that will actually get deleted. And sometimes members get a bit offended by that. But it's like, no, if you want to discuss that sort of stuff, there are tons of vegan Facebook groups that, that you could join. In terms of... Um, in terms of, of the, the issue that you just raised, because it, it's kind of interesting... Um, 
when people do reach out, when they're having problems um, or, or there's a dilemma and they're trying to you know, access the group mind to get help on it, they will receive a whole variety of different forms of advice. I have not really seen the moderators get involved in that. I think their perspective on that is, do you know what? Something out of this might serve not necessarily the person who posed the question, but perhaps someone else who, who is reading the thread. And so they, they tend not to intervene with that. So a moderator has a, um, a pretty finely tuned sensitivity to things that, that could upset people or offend them, things that are not relevant or appropriate or applicable to the group. And, oh, let me see. It wasn't, to be honest, it wasn't really a focus of my research, but I, it, it is an intriguing question. I think um, I, there's always a question behind the question. You know what I'm saying? When a when a person posts a question in in social media, it's I, I always find it difficult because I want to actually talk to them mm-hmm. and find out what the question is behind the question. Right. And so I, I think you know if I if I were the moderator, and often I do this because I'll just jump in and and, and, and contribute to these questions as well. So I uh, when when someone asks a question in a, in in a situation like that. I'll usually answer it by asking another question, a clarifying question. So I think that's probably a pretty good quality for a moderator to have, to be really curious about what is this person really asking? What is the problem behind the problem? Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So what, what kind of, um, do you have any data on people who dropped out? On like what, uh, you know, <clears throat> what they didn't get out of it or, or what happened to them afterwards? Do people tend to want to, you know, stay in for the long haul or can they, uh, is it like an umbilical cord that they can cut and go off on their own? Yeah. So in, in the context of my research project, um, I, first of all, I, I did basically a, a text analysis of, 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 of posts that people made and then I did in-depth interviews. And Look, I mean, obviously it was a self-selected sample. People put their hand up to be interviewed and so they tended to be the ones who were happy with the group. Mm. Do people drop out of these groups? Absolutely. They might join the group out of curiosity. They've heard about a plant-based diet or a whole food plant-based diet. They want to know what it's all about and then they decide it's not for them and, 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 and you know, we never hear from them again. And they either leave the group, in which case I can't contact them to find out why, or they they just become, um, they might still stay in the group, but they don't contribute regularly, in which case they're not going to respond to, to my request to interview them. So in other words, it, it, the scope of my research project didn't didn't actually allow me to, to get in touch with people who decided, no, this group is not for me because they weren't in the group anymore. Uh-huh. <laughs> so so how, how has the research helped helped you? Oh, that's a that's an interesting question, isn't it? It's it's helped me I suppose it's helped me answer a few questions about is online support really a meaningful um, form of support compared to in-person support? That and that's a question that's really dogged researchers since um, since the online world really blossomed and people started spending more of their time online rather than, you know, with, with actual living, breathing human beings talking to them. 
And I don't, I'm not going to say that having an online support community is a substitute for having real life people that you meet up with for meals and, and go for runs with, because I don't think it is. But for people who are very isolated, um, geographically, for instance, we, we had members in the group who were in pretty far from parts of Australia. And, and there, are, there are parts of Australia that really are far from anywhere. <laughs> and they were, they were you know, literally the only person that they knew who was not eating a, a sort of typical Australian diet. And for them, the group was absolutely a lifeline. It was, they, they'd log on several times a day and without, sometimes not even posting themselves. So they might just have been what, what, what is, you know, rather um, uh, an ugly term, lurker. They might have just been lurking. So, and that's another, another interesting thing was that people don't actually have to actively participate to benefit. They can just be lurking hmm. as in reading other people's posts and they still report a benefit from group membership. So that was pretty interesting to me. Hmm. That's, that's very cool. Um, any, anything you, you encountered about people finding this online community and then either finding or beginning to create real, you know, real life community um, around themselves? Yes, and uh, yes, absolutely. So uh, th this is a large group where we're nearly at 10,000 members now. And uh, certainly some people do live in reasonable proximity to, to each other. There have also been a couple of, of, of kind of offshoot groups. So members of this group have established um, um, meetup groups within their own cities or regions. It's part of part of Nelson Campbell's um, uh, Plant Pure Pods. Uh -huh. So we actually have plant-powered uh, plant Sydney and plant-powered Melbourne and plant-powered Brisbane and plant-powered Perth and Adelaide. And we're starting to, to infiltrate the regional centres as well. And so there's a lot of cross-membership of this particular group with these other groups. And, and therefore, you know, if we're having a meetup, for one of our, our sort of, you know, city-based um, groups, we can cross-promote that in the larger group. And so, so we end up sort of creating all these sort of satellite organisations, I suppose, where people can get that, that very needed face-to-face, -face, you know, sitting in the same room, sharing the meal with each other kind of contact, which I do think is, is really super important for human beings. Gotcha. So do you have like a short list of do's and don'ts for someone who wants to create a group or or jump in and, and fix a group that isn't working? Yeah, um, so for starters, set really clear guidelines. Uh, Facebook groups now allow you to, to have uh, up to three questions that people need to answer before they join. And uh, that, that came into, that, that Facebook um, provision came into this group about several years into, into its inception. So newer members now have to sort of jump this hurdle of answering questions to make sure that they actually understand <laughs> what a whole food plant-based diet is. And that this particular group also embraces a no-oil policy because that tends to hose down all of the tedious arguments about is coconut oil or olive oil like that, they still pop up. Uh -huh. it, it's amazing. Even even after people have answered the questions and said, yes, I understand. Um, I understand what the purpose of this group is. Even then, there'll still be questions like, why don't you eat olive oil in this group? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Blows everyone's mind. But, but have, have questions. It at least weeds out a lot of that, um, a lot of that stuff that people just not understanding. Um, what else? Um, so if you're if you're if you're either founding a group or you're trying to fix a group that's sort of gone off the rails, 
you need to allocate a fair amount of time to actually be in the group and reading posts. This particular group has five moderators and one of them is in Europe. So between the five of them, they, they cover different time zones. They're awake at different times of the huh. day. And so if, if, some, uh, if some discussion has sort of got a bit ugly and trouble is brewing in the group, there's, there's always someone who's able to get in there and just hose it down or, you know, um, if necessary, delete particular posts if, they, if there's offensive language or, or delete an entire thread if it's clearly just gone completely pear-shaped and there's no saving it. Hmm. Um, and... Um, what else? How else do you, do you save a group? Oh, if if the group is not terribly active, the other thing is just posting posting interesting um, questions for people to answer, um, or or posting articles. A lot of what happens in whole food plant based policies is is, is people, including moderators, which is very engaged members of the group, will post interesting articles. So, you know, if, if say, Joel Kahn or David Katz or, or, you know, John McDougal, or someone's just written a really great article, or Doug Lyle has done an excellent webinar on some aspect of habit change, someone will actually just pop a link to that in the group. And, and then that often starts a discussion and, 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 and just, you know, it engages people more. So, being involved, hosing down, hmm. hosing down arguments before they get nasty. Um, if necessary, evicting people from the group if they just won't play in the playground nicely. You do actually have to bump them off. <laughs> hmm. and, uh, yeah, and, and it's kind of like having that, having that awareness that the well-being of the group trumps individuals. So if one particular person is not getting their needs met. In, in the group, but they're behaving badly because of that. The, the well-being of the group actually trumps their needs, mm. and that that's that's actually a little bit pro, um, troubling for me. But my discussions with the group's founder, uh, she was really clear on that. It, the group comes first. Um, if individuals don't like it, tough. Right. Well, you know, I mean, for for what they're paying, it's pretty. Right. <laughs> it, it, that was the point too. It's like I do this for free. I'm a volunteer, so if people don't like the way I run the group, they can they can basically buzz off and start their own. <laughs> right. Yeah, I learned it from my wife because she accidentally uh, not a group, but she had a Facebook page that got up to uh, over a hundred thousand people, and and she's like, "This is my living room. If you come in my house and you sit in my living room and you don't behave, you can't stay here." Yeah, she was exactly. she became very quick to bump people off after a while yes yes yeah <laughs> no if, if they if they won't behave if they won't play nicely then, then they don't belong and and it's also that kind of toxicity um affects the the, the group and the atmosphere of the group you know one of the most frequent comments that i got uh during the the in-depth interviews that I did was that this is a really friendly group. And of course, Facebook being what it is, most people are in multiple groups. And so I spoke to people who were in very many other groups. Um, and this was their favorite because of that friendly atmosphere. So that is the moderators or the, or the admins responsibility to maintain that atmosphere. Um, just, just to sort of give you a, a, a little bit of, of context for this. Am I allowed to swear on your podcast? Please. 
Okay, there is a there is a Facebook group um, called Vegans in Australia who aren't assholes, <laughs> which developed as a splitters group from a group called Vegans in Australia. I'll leave uh, your, your, <laughs> you and your viewers to fill in the gaps about why Vegans in Australia who aren't assholes were formed. But that's <laughs> that's just a little a little taste of Facebook group life. <laughs> uh, I'm still waiting for you to curse. I haven't heard any <laughs> unacceptable language yet. <laughs> That's great. Um, so I'm. Uh, let's wrap this up. I'm curious, um, like, what you're up to now. I know you you, you wrote to me that you you took a international uh, lifestyle medicine exam, part of the first Aussie cohort. Um, like, what 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 are you up yeah, to, and how can people find you? Yeah, I, w I was just off the back of, of, of submitting my honours thesis, and uh, and a month later, month or six weeks later, they, they <laughs> um, the um, Australasian College of Lifestyle, uh, sorry, Australasian Society of Lifestyle Medicine were, were running the very first exam to become a a, um, a certified lifestyle medicine practitioner. So <laughs> I hit the books again and, and, and did this exam, which, by the way, was um, about the most hideous exam I've ever sat in my life. And and I've sat a few. It was it was just truly awful. So uh, anyway, I'm in, now in what in, uh, in what way was it, it was just really hard or irrelevant? Oh, it was it was multiple choice questions that were just completely twisted. Mm -hmm. um, multiple choice exams that I can remember from from way back in, in in high school. It was like there was always two answers that were clearly wrong. And, and one that was probably wrong and then the other usually stood out like like the proverbial dog stalls. But this one was just, how can we write the question in the most convoluted way to trip you up? But I managed to pass, yes. All right. So now I'm officially a certified lifestyle medicine practitioner. And what am I up to? Um, I, I took a hiatus from studies on, I am going to begin my PhD next year and I haven't quite settled on the topic. But I'm really, really interested in behavior change. So that's what I'm probably going to oh. end up focusing on. Well, if you're, if you're looking for a cohort to study, I would love to, to give you access to WellStart. That sounds amazing. Good. I will talk to my potential supervisors about that because they, they, I've been kicking around a few ideas in my mind and haven't quite settled on anything. So, all right, I'll get back to you on that. Yeah. Um, other than that, I'm running my practice as usual. I'm busy writing articles every week, as, as, as you know. Um, and, oh, um, I'm, I'm also... The I know you have the um, Holistic Holiday at Sea that's been running in the US for a number of years. Well, our first version of that in Australia is running in October, and I'm going to be one of the cruise presenters. It, oh. it's, it's called um, the oh, and now I'm having a mental blank. Um, <laughs> what is the name of this event? The oh, it'll come to me in a sec. Uh, but if you look up plantbasedcruise.com.au uh, for those those who want to sort of just squeak un, under the line, um, plantbasedcruise.com.au, and so that that will be the first kind of. It, it is a whole food plant based cruise, so there's going to be lots of lectures and whole food cooking demos, and I'll be speaking about the gut microbiome and. Um, psychosocial factors and cardiovascular disease and behavior change and a bunch of other things. So that's what I'm up to in October. Um, in 
uh, in this month, next week, I'm flying over to San Diego for the um, the plant-based nutrition healthcare conference. I'll, I'll see you there. So we get to do a face-to-face, which will be fun. Awesome. <laughs> your so, first time, right? In San Diego. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, oh, the, your first time at this conference? Yes. Yes. I'm doing um, plantrition, and then in October, I'm doing the ACLM conference in Indianapolis. So I'm. I'm oh, I haven't got to there one yet. Yeah. It sounds amazing. Yeah, this, this is my first time at the Plant-Based Nutrition Healthcare Conference. I'm a repeat offender. It is my favorite conference to go to because, and this is going to sound weird, but people hug. You don't normally go to medical conferences where people hug, but there is a lot of hugging going on at this conference, and it's cool. Yeah, well, the, w- the way they eat, they probably don't smell very bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. And all of those greens and beans feed up their good gut bacteria and just juice all the serotonin and make them really happy. That's my theory. <laughs> cool. Well, that, you, you know, that could be your other PhD thesis. The- <laughs> I have considered that, as a matter of fact, the effects of a whole food plant-based diet on the gut microbiome and how that affects mood. It, it, it's on my radar. Uh-huh. I have a potential PhD supervisor for that. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And tell us one more time your website so people can follow you. Yes, it's empowertotalhealth.com.au and I have a weekly free newsletter. Every now and again I post a video on YouTube. I'm not very active on that, but you can check out my YouTube channel, which is Empower Total Health. I've got a Facebook page, look up Empower Total Health, and I tweet a bit, not, not a heck of a lot, not nearly as much as Donald Trump, but I, but I do every now and again tweet. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, I'm, 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 sure, I'm sure yours are, uh, are adding to the... Uh to the positivity in the world. So it's another, another <laughs> distinction. I should hope so. <laughs> All right. Well, Robin, thank you so much. It's, I'm so excited. I'm going to meet you next week. And it's going to be fun. Yeah. And I'm, I'm so happy that, uh, we're, you know, we're, you've put together this, this long series on, on ketogenic diets. And I think this is going to, this is going to help a lot of people. So I hope, uh, you know, it, it kind of, you, you threw out lots of, references to different things and, and if you if someone goes to the articles like half of the words are in blue <laughs> which means you're, you're linking to the references you're talking about so this is this is not yeah. you just uh, making shit up i i don't write anything that i don't reference i I have this, I suppose it's a paranoid streak in me. I'm always afraid that someone's going to sort of email me and say, hey, you know, why why did you say this? I'm like, it wasn't me. It was the researcher. Here it is. So mm-hmm. whenever I write an article, it, it's fully referenced. You can go back to the original literature and read it. And I highly recommend people do that. Yep. Yep. It's a, yeah, it's a great way to uh, cover our asses. <laughs> You know, and and be more credible than the the people promoting these crazy diets. Yeah, sorry, I'm my um, third world Australian internet speeds just just oh. <laughs> cranking down now. Could you say that last bit again? Uh, oh yeah, yeah. I said I was saying it, um, it. It allows us to be more credible. That you know we're we're actually we're you know because we're we're in a debate, right? And it's it's a crazy debate. Uh, but like, what, you know, how can we distinguish ourselves and we'll say, well, you know, when you're looking at the other side, like follow their links, because otherwise it's he said, she said, and you, you have to, you, you know, yes, if, if we're going to, if you're going to empower total yeah. health, you have to empower yeah. people to evaluate research at some level. 
And alas, dear listener, here is where Skype crapped out or our connection crapped out and we could not continue the conversation. And right after that, I was busy. Robin was busy. We were supposed to meet up and finish this off in San Diego. But Hurricane Florence happened and kept me here. So we're going to have to just leave it there for now. We got in all the good stuff. You're going to have to go and make up your own ending where we thank each other profusely and say how much we admire each other's work, uh, because that unfortunately did not get recorded. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope it was really helpful to you. If you would like to check out the show notes with the links, you can do so at plantyourself.com slash 289. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 288 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you like what you're hearing, you can support the show. There's a whole bunch of ways to do that. The uh, most direct and most obvious is to become a patron at patreon.com slash plant yourself. You can make an ongoing monthly contribution that allows me to devote time and resources to finding guests, preparing um, having the interviews, editing, uploading, hosting, all that stuff. So that's really, really appreciated if you are getting value out of this and you'd like to, uh, to share some of the costs with me. Also, easier, you can take a couple of minutes and leave a review on iTunes, or as I hear it's called these days, Apple Podcast or Stitcher. If anyone knows how to get, how to get me onto Spotify, I've been trying without any luck, apparently. Uh, drop me a line, hjplantyourself.com. If you know anybody who works at Spotify, you can sneak the Plant Yourself podcast in there. Garden News These Days is all about harvesting herbs. We've got tons of Tulsi or holy basil. Um, the hibiscus flowers are now in bloom. There's a whole bunch of other things that my wife can identify that I can't that are being dried and tinctured and turned into all sorts of great herbal medicines. And I picked the last of the scuppernung grapes, which wasn't a great harvest this year, maybe about a, a quart and a half altogether, where in past years we'd filled five-gallon buckets easily. Um, the other big news is I'm in the middle of building a giant three-bin compost system. And if you've ever seen me build anything, you realize how remarkable that is that I'm trying again. Um, but the compost bins are pretty forgiving structures, so I'm hoping that it will do the job. In running news, I am slow, really slow these days. Went for a 10-miler with Geo on Sunday and came in at about 10.50 per mile. A lot of walking, a lot of slow jogging. So uh, maybe I'm overtraining, so, uh, and I'm still doing uh, Frisbee practices, so maybe I'll take it back a notch and maybe add some yoga and stretching and melt method and various other things into the mix. All right, time for thanks. Let's bring up the music. That's Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace by Will Ridenauer, who has so kindly allowed me to use this beautiful melody as the theme music for this show. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons, as in... Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Dyson, Brittany Vorder, Dominic Marrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hadley, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barnes, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Aaron, Jennifer Volkanovsky, David Bozick, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elizabeth Felton, Victoria Dolomanova, Leia Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julianne Rowland, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, from the Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Kenneth, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzik, Gunnett Bedham, Gila Sarah, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Daruni Bisov, Kate Gio, and Carolyn Argentati. 
I'm going to go back to Darone. Darone Avizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lindemann, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, the Scribble, Harry R. Susan Laverty, the Panda Beacon, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corcoran, Kelly Michia, Dean Norton, Ronnie Lynch, the Plant Happy Organ, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Cobble, Shell Root, Liz, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Roseland, Diat, Julie Lang, Olandegard. Lisa Tuzinwak, Honey Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Avita Lael, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Cherry Olakoski, Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carroll, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Kelly Baker, Miracle Ann, Jesse Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Belkin, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justin Divot, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Jen Dick, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Laura, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Deb Kosh. Deb Cassia, Emmy, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Picorni, Stephen Leenan, Patty DiMartino, and Mike and Donna Carts for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. Time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Dawn, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barons, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Vizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Kara Adams, Ron Fronsek, Jeanette Benham, Gil Assert, David Donna, Hubler, Cyber, Toronto Vizo, Gio and Carol Argentati, Jody Friesner, with Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck. The equally mysterious Tracy Z of Eva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lenneman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harpers and Martha Bergner, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, the Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Shannon Hirschman, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzumak, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis. Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Orlikoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, and Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divot, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darmy Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McEntee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Leenan. Patty D. Martino, Mike and Donna Carts, Deanne Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bashford, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullis, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, Diana, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt. Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidoroska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught, Abedible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, and Danielle Roberts for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. As always, be well, my friends. <laughs>